Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BT130, Masculinity-Femininity Contrasted, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 234, January the 7th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss a subject which we feel is very important and which uh, does not get too much attention in our time, unless it's unfavorable, the issue of masculinity. Now, feminism, of course, has attacked the idea of masculinity and has waged unrelenting war against it. Then you have pseudo-masculinity in the form of the macho idea, which is scarcely what uh, we are concerned with here. Masculinity requires attention because the masculine component is a necessity to life a necessity to the family, a necessity within the sphere of the church. And it is today under unrelenting attack where men give ground, they lose ground, of course, and the community as a whole loses ground. For example, it's an obvious and well-known fact that as women take over leadership within the sphere of the church. The attendance to the church declines, and there is a growing exodus from the church, and men in particular lose interest in the faith. The role of men in society is a God-given one. It does not mean that they are necessarily more intelligent, but the components of masculinity are given by God so that the man provide headship and leadership. Well, with that general statement, Otto, do you want to make some remarks on the subject? Yes. To an extent, it's been distorted by the recent feminist historians who seem to uh, argue that a patriarchal society was evil, that men deliberately set out to humiliate and dominate women. And I recall, though, when I was quite young, that the historians were rather strong on the argument that men created families and protected women and were very jealous of the fact that they should raise their own children and not somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And that rather simple observation seemed to me to make very obvious sense. We find that family structure around the world in all cultures. And so far as I can gather, there has never been a culture in which the women dominated society as such. No. In all 
all the centuries of the human race. The only exception to that is that when a society is in its last stages of uh, decadence and collapse, women do dominate. Well, in a defeated group, yes, a defeated group, the men lose their prestige. Mm -hmm. They lose the respect of the women, and the women go with the conqueror. And a society in which uh, women have uh, a dominant position, which means a society in it, on its last legs, is one in which the family collapses because the sexual freedom of women means that the paternity of a child is no longer uh, a matter of assurance. And the men begin to drift out of the family uh, aspect of society. And the children then are left in the lurch. Well, we see this in, a, in some of the uh, reactions to divorce, where once divorced, the men refuse to support the family any longer. They will not support the women and the children, even though they know that they're their own children. This is not true of all men, of course, but it's true of a considerable percentage because they have no longer any control over the situation. It's as though they will not pay for it. Of course, various and sundry methods have been used to crack down on them, but it's one of the consequences of divorce which has not been examined from a psychological viewpoint or even a human viewpoint. It's just taken for granted that since men are still held legally responsible for the support of children and their own children in particular, that they would continue to exercise those responsibilities. In fact, and in reality, it's running up against a certain factor in human behavior, that a man is not going to pay or doesn't want to pay when he is no longer in control of his family. Mm -hmm. And when he has the responsibility but not the authority, he fails his responsibility. Now, in that and in a number of other respects, it seems to me that we have in recent decades taken men almost for granted as though they were draft animals of some sort that uh, the whole question of what constitutes manhood is now a closed book. Yes. My father used to, never gave me a lecture on the subject, but he would throw me a cue once in a while. And very briefly, I remember once that uh, he had a habit of doing something that irritated my mother, and I've forgotten now what it was. It was so minor. But she said, I hope when you grow up that you won't do things like this. She said, oh, really, I don't think this he should do that, whatever it was. And I asked him later, when we were alone together, if it's true that a good man wouldn't have done this or that. And he looked at me and said, who said that? And I said, well, mother said that. He said, what's your mother know about being a man? And there was, a certain, there was quite a bit of truth there. What we're supposed to be like and what we're like are two different things. A book was published last year 
by Bonus Books in Chicago, Enemies of Eros by Maggie Gallagher. And it is a woman who, ah, this Mrs. Gallagher, who feels that the whole sexual revolution and feminism led her into a trap. And this is what she says. uh, She says that uh, women in the last 20 years have suffered more than ever before. And I'll quote, Women are more likely to be abandoned by their husbands, to have to raise their children alone, to slip into poverty, and to experience all the consequent degradations. Domestic violence is on the rise. So is sexual abuse of children, while the sexual abuse of women has become the social norm. Women today work longer and harder than their mothers did and under stress are more likely to collapse in nervous breakdowns. Fewer women can find suitable marriage partners and many who do marry will never have the children for which they long." She says one of the great evils of the feminist movement is that it has exalted choice at the expense of wisdom. Well, choice is one of those double-edged words which doesn't mean what it used to mean. Uh, The uh, pro-abortionists call it the woman's right to choose, but they choose abortion, and they're not saying so openly. I question whether there's more sexual abuse of women today than before, but that's a subject I'm not an expert on. I do notice that a considerable one of the side effects of pushing women into the marketplace as independent workers. Women have always been part of the workforce, but they've been part of the workforce as part of the family partnership. Now they're into the workforce as independent workers. Mm -hmm. And of course with independence, men have lost a great deal of their leverage Mm -hmm. over the over women. They can no longer say, well, uh, you go Mm -hmm. ahead and do what you want to do. I recall that Mr. Blazer told me that he gave Mrs. Blazer a million dollars worth of stock for tax reasons. And then he said, very shortly after that, he said, I realize that a woman with a million dollars is different than a woman without a million (laughs) dollars. And he said, I adjusted my attitude accordingly. Well, the same thing is true about women who are independent in the workforce. uh, They're in an entirely different position than the traditional. They're no longer dependent upon what my grandmother used to call the breadwinner. Or, no, she had another word for it. I think it was provider. She said provider. Well, men, having lost the business of being a provider, are in a very much weakened condition vis-a-vis women. But women are in a much worse position vis-a-vis men. Now, what seems to be going on is that the woman expects the man to continue the traditional role while she has altered hers. And that doesn't work. This, uh, in this book, Gallagher says that 
motherhood has now been devalued by the feminist movement and children have been the victims. And she writes, children have been demoted from a public good to a private pleasure. In the process, women's work has been transformed into a play activity, a hobby, like collecting model trains. Kids are supposed to be weird objects of gratification to parents, a bothersome uh, nuisance to everyone else. You prefer to spend your money on your noisier, smelly kids? Me, I prefer a Ferrari, unquote. Well, the percentages have been distorted by the press. I read recently that the traditional family still exists to 40% or so, whereas the usual report is that the traditional family has virtually vanished. That's not so. No, I've seen figures uh, saying that only 7%, and that's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. It's over 40% of the families still have a traditional relationship. The men still go to work, the women take care of the kids, and so forth. Uh, and I don't see any particular difference. I think the press is covering a very thin part of the population and presenting it as the norm. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we're talking about a subject that has been greatly propagandized and distorted. Mm -hmm. I think women in the United States today are in a very bad condition, very bad situation, because there is a virtual war on them. They cannot go out at night alone in most parts of the country. They are not safe. My wife is sending my daughter uh, a mace because she's in Seattle, which is a very high crime city, and she's living in a mixed neighborhood, which is very dangerous. And she tells me that every time she gets on a bus, black men have things to say. And my wife tells me that that was true in New York 30 years ago. And I have yet to see it in print. Mm -hmm. We are not in the position anymore of telling the truth or hearing the truth about ourselves, the truth about anything that's going on, and especially in this highly charged area of sexual relations and male-female relations. One of the things that has contributed to the presence state is romanticism. Because romanticism demasculinized society. It turned uh, men into a kind of uh, middle sex, uh, effeminate generally and uh, with an emphasis also on the homosexual. Mario Praz, in his romantic agony, documents that and other things. And that is perhaps the great classic and has been for 30, 40 years on the romantic movement. But one of the things that happened with romanticism is that in the sphere of the arts, the 
artist became an effeminate figure. This started first among poets, and then uh, painters, but musicians and poets were the lead-off people. And in the 18th century, the poets were rather clearly masculine figures, and of course in the 17th century as well. Whether it was a man like John Donne or uh, Dryden or Alexander Pope, they were masculine men. But then when you enter the romantic sphere, you have the deliberately effeminate man, often a man who is given to bizarre sexual practices, and the musician who uh, cultivates the long-haired and effeminate manner, so that Romanticism self-consciously and deliberately introduced sexual confusion into the human scene. Well, I'm really not up on the Romantic movement to that extent. Uh, I think that in the Civil War period, for instance, in the United States, masculinity was in no problem in the United States. No, but we were not as much influenced by Romanticism. That's 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 maybe one of the reasons. Uh, after the war, we had a problem because the churches and the uh, intellectuals in general, although they didn't use the word in those days, had led us into that terrible tragedy. And we had then the whole question of immense immigration. And men had to build cities and jobs, factories and so forth. And they turned away from literature, they turned away from art, they turned away from culture, and more or less turned it over to the women. To this day, there's a lot of that left in the American psyche. This is the only country that I know of where the men have given themselves a lobotomy and where they consider reading and music and poetry and art to be feminine. And I think that we have to go into very careful on this thing because a, a nation of slobs is not more masculine. No. Uh, there is another facet to all this, not only romanticism, but Unitarianism. Some scholars have felt that that has been an important aspect of the demasculinization of Western society, and especially of the United States. Uh, Dr. Douglas, a woman. Yes, I remember it. I heard a very good book. Yes, The Feminization of American Culture. Of American Culture. culture. But that, you see, what, we, what that has led to is to deculturize American mm -hmm. men, not to make them more effeminate particularly, mm -hmm. but just to make them more ignorant. Well... Uh, she sees a connection, Douglas does, between the decline of Calvinism and the rise of Unitarianism and the feminization of uh, American culture beginning with the clergy. Well, there's something to that. These are interlinked phenomena, mm -hmm. interlinked trends. 
to put it on a little more earthy level, the fact I have noticed men in in uh, work situations and in business, in corporate life, a man who gr- grows up without a father doesn't learn the rules. Mm-hmm. Now, Harold Janine did not know the rules. There was nothing effeminate about Harold. He was mm-hmm. a, he was a man and a uh, dominating man. And one of his problems as a manager was that he used to humiliate other men. And he couldn't even figure out other men. He sent them all to a psychological testing group. And they went through psychological tests because Harold's father died when he was about 11 or so. I don't think they were they were close even before then. And he never did find out how to figure out the other guy, how to size him up, how to handle him, how to treat him. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the results was that when Harold was running ITT, there was a swinging door at the top because men wouldn't put up with that. And he lost some very good men. And in the end, he wound up with a freak show. His successors have had to uh, sell pieces of the company ever since because it didn't make any too much sense. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed other men who grew up without masculine guidance and uh, who have just never figured out how to get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about the uh, the clergy. So I uh, don't know too many clergymen, but I know a few who struck me as having been raised in some kind of a nunnery or another mm-hmm. because they didn't yeah. seem to know a damn thing about talking to other men. Well, there was a saying a uh, century and a half ago before the Civil War and after uh, the three sexes were men, women, and beachers. This reference to Henry Ward Beecher. Oh, my. And uh, others uh, altered that to say men, women, and preachers. Mm. And the source of that was, of course, the Unitarian clergy. Mm. And uh, you're familiar with Ralph Waldo Emerson more than most people are. Much more than (laughs) I wanted to be, yeah. And... uh, Emerson was very much a part of that movement, very precious about everything. The culmination of that, which uh, influenced a great many people in Britain, and Emerson's European influence could well be the subject of a major book. Uh, You have in uh, Oscar Wilde. Well, that's going pretty far. <laughs> I, won't, I won't blame Oscar Wilde on Emerson now. <laughs> no, but there is a connection, you see. Uh, Emerson did begin the demasculinization of American culture. Well, I thought really that it was the feminization which allowed these fakes to appear and to masquerade as persons of culture when they were not. It was a terrible uh, mistake in the United States to let the women take over in culture here because it meant that uh, it became attenuated. It became really formless. It had no point, no purpose. 
A nation without a culture is a nation without a mind. Mm -hmm. And we have paid a very heavy penalty for this. Not having developed any standard of national values. Mm -hmm. The men, uh, we have no, not even the self-made aristocracy that Jefferson hoped for. Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody said this, and it's not original with me, that a Texas aristocrat is entirely different than a Boston aristocrat or a California aristocrat. We have no way of even telling the class to which a person belongs unless we know his part of the country and what that context is. We hear, of course, about uh, people who are very well equipped. And we've gone, Clemenceau, I think, was one who said that we went from a position of primitiveness to decadence without an intervening period of civilization. And uh, you cannot be a civilized man if you don't have any culture. You can only be a brute of some sort. You don't, uh, you don't know where you are, what you are. A woman, an artist, let's put it another way, an artist without an education cannot be a good artist. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to be a good anything without an education, and uh, not necessarily schooling, which yeah. we went into before. And manhood, it has to have some sort of a definition. There are things which a man cannot allow himself to do, cannot allow somebody else to do to him, cannot allow himself to be. Now they're teaching, and you and I heard this from a teacher, Bob Edwards, they're teaching sex in the third grade, and they're having the children draw the positions of various perversions to make sure they understand them. But they're not telling them that these are things which cannot be, should not be done. Yes. So what sort of men and women are we going to have? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a long way from the Romantic movement. Yes, but it is a product of the Romantic movement. The Romantic movement fostered a false idea of what constituted art and what constituted the intellectual and what constituted spirituality. The dramatic shift in Western culture with Romanticism uh, was an important factor in uh, derailing Western society. Well, I think actually... Uh it was simply a part of the loss of faith oh, yes. of attendant upon both the French Revolution and the aftermath. And if there's no God, all is permitted. Mm -hmm. And if there is no God, there is no sin. If there's no sin, then what, uh, what holds people together? Mm -hmm. uh, there was a sense of honor which lingered on longer. Uh, that an honorable man did not do this and did not do that. I understand now, though, that younger men uh, have no co such concept. The very word honor, which was so important in our time, is no longer 
a word that has the same meaning. I don't hear it used. No. I don't see it in print. Except in the courtroom when you address the judge as your honor, which is a misnomer and a case of all too many of them. But it's a very important point. Yes. Now, in Latin, uh, in Latin America, in Venezuela, I recall, now we have to go back a number of years, 30 years or so, visiting my father, introduced me to a man who had killed his brother because he found out that his brother was a pervert. He shot him and called the police. And the police uh, came and the authorities asked him why he did this terrible thing and he said he had dishonored the family and they released him. There were no charges filed. That was it. Now that's of course incredible up here. I remember even younger, uh, even longer than that, Montero Lobato, a, uh, no, he was a, a writer, a general in Brazil who stole a man's wife, newspaper man's wife. He ran into the newspaper man in the corridor of a office building, and the general immediately pulled out a gun and shot him. And he was arrested, of course. His defense was, well, I was with his wife. He knew it. As a man of honor, he said, I expected him to try to kill me when he saw me, and when I saw him, I shot in self-defense. They released him. That was that. All right, that's not the American method. We don't believe in honor in that European sense. One of the ideas that developed with the Romantic movement was the belief that men tended to be very mundane, coarse, uh, and uh, materialistic. Whereas women, it was held, are spiritual and higher beings. As a matter of fact, it was that romantic concept that led to the birth of feminism. And some of the feminists went so far as to say that God had to be feminine because uh, how else could you have a pure and holy God, a spiritual being? And it led to the development of uh, a number of strange ideas. Transcendentalism carried uh, the implications of its idea to the point where the material world was so downgraded that some felt it was not real. Uh, Margaret Fuller, of course, is well known for the fact that she found the fact of being a physical being and living in a material universe very degrading. And after much soul-searching and a number of years of inner struggle, she finally said, I accept the universe and Carlyle's response was he gad she'd better. But that kind of thinking then climaxed in Mary Baker Eddy, a direct outgrowth of Emerson and the Transcendentalists. She believed, of course, that matter is not real, that uh, spirituality is the only real thing and universal mind alone prevails and all else is an illusion. As a result, 
the masculine disposition and temper has been seen in uh, Western culture and especially in the United States since then as somehow inferior, as somehow coarse, crude, vulgar, not really fit for the uh, living room unless the man cleans his act up a bit and acts uh, as his wife feels he should act. And that has been an important strain in uh, Western thought. Well, it's been a strain. Of course, I don't know how any sensible person could hold it when you think of the great composers and the great artists and the great poets. And you realize how many of them are men. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, you look around at the construction of society, which was not put together by feather pillows. And you are talking about, as you mentioned earlier, the differences between men and women. Women have been cooking, for instance, for a long time, but it took men to improve the stove. And uh, if it had been up to the girls, I think we'd still be in that nice warm cave. <laughs> uh, I don't uh, I don't think that uh, there is a high or a low here but there is a difference in approach in some respects women are more specific and more earthy than men because they're more familiar with blood and with the facts of life they bear children and they're not at least in my experience, as ethereal as they're supposed to be. Uh, on the other hand, I was very amused by a writer in Punch who said that women have a tendency to live at once one remove. He said a great deal of their conversation and their observation is what we're doing. <laughs> uh, I will take exception to the, your statement if it depended on women, we'd still be in the cave. I believe that, uh, assuming the mythical idea of the caveman for a moment, one of the first things the woman said after looking around the cave after her marriage was, this will never do. <laughs> You've got to provide better housing than this. <laughs> so they moved out of the cave in a hurry if they were ever there. Well, <laughs> you remember Steinbeck's story about the couple in the middle of the Depression who found a boiler and they were living in the boiler it was all right it was a little difficult to get into you had to get on your hands and knees and it was an elbow that was hard to traverse <laughs> but once you got in the boiler everything was fine you were snug and dry and so forth and he he came home one one evening after out trying to do whatever and she was crying and he said what's the matter well she wanted curtains <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are probably familiar with the saying that behind every great man, every successful man, is a woman who says, I haven't a thing to wear. The way I heard it was, it was a, behind every successful man was an astonished mother-in-law. <laughs> I was given a book recently. Uh, that's not what I meant about conversations between men and women in which 
they misunderstand one another. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't finish the book because it was written by a woman, and the male examples were so stupid <laughs> <laughs> that I, I threw it away. Maybe she had stumbled on something, Otto. <laughs> and I do notice that when women write books in which men are involved, the men are a step below intellectually. <laughs> uh, there are exceptions. The Bronte sisters had Heathcliff, and of course nobody could ever live up to Heathcliff except Lucifer himself. So they go from one extreme to the other. But I do think we have the social scientists of the United States, to be serious, have seriously interfered with the natural cultural developments of this country, mm-hmm. even more so than the Romantics or the Unitarians. I really believe that our social scientists have decided to redefine human nature in both sexual and behavioral terms in every sense and they are trying now to convince the American people about certain things about men and women which are not true they're trying to teach the children of this country that any form of sexual behavior is normal when it is not that both sexes are equal in all respects and they are not We have now the spectacle of women in the army in the Gulf. And when they fall into the hands of the Arabs, this is going to be ghastly. Uh, Just to uh, go back to my statement about the Unitarians, I don't think we've studied this situation enough to appreciate the extent to which Unitarianism has influenced Western civilization. A Canadian uh, scholar writing uh, on Darwin, the title, In the Minds of Men, has called attention to the fact that, contrary to the myth, that uh, Darwin was a simple Bible-believing person until he took the voyage on the Beagle, He came from a Unitarian family, a strong Unitarian background, and he represented in his thinking a Unitarian impulse to overthrow the credibility of the Bible. Oh, yes. He was not a Christian at any time. No. No, there is no question that the Unitarians led the way Mm -hmm. to where we are. Mm -hmm. But we are now in hands much worse than their predecessors. We are up against amoral people who call themselves scientists Mm -hmm. who have decided that human beings must behave in a way they have never behaved in the history of humanity. And this has opened the gates to monsters. Well, one of the things we tend to forget, too, is that the biblical pattern is the God-given one, and it will reassert itself. That I agree. 
the uh, 31st chapter of Proverbs gives us a picture of the virtuous woman. And the word virtuous is used in the sense of strong, morally strong, and in every way strong. And the virtuous woman is uh, presented as one who manages an estate, ranches, farms, business, the varied enterprises, and handles a substantial household, buying and selling and so on, while her husband sits in the gates. That is, he has a governing place in society. To sit in the gates meant to be a town ruler or a ruler in the state. And the chapter too often is taken as an indication just of what the woman was. But it is also by indirection a statement of what the man was. Patriarchy meant that men were leaders in society but a wife, uh, the wife of a patriarch was comparable to a prime minister. She had greater powers than women have ever had in any other society. So the place of women in patriarchy has never been studied properly. It's been subject only to abuse by feminists who don't know anything about patriarchy. Well, not only don't know anything about patriarchy, but have abandoned the whole idea of looking at other cultures. This country has turned into a very parochial country. It used to, when I was a boy, look around the world for examples and for knowledge. People used to go overseas in order to learn things. It was taken for granted that all the wisdom in the world didn't repose within the boundaries of the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, a person who didn't know anything about any other culture was considered pretty narrow. Now we have women, of course, are important. They are partners. And every marriage is a partnership. I've seen some marvelous businesses that were, in effect, partnerships. It generally takes the best effort of two people, a man and a woman, to make one good career because a career has to be concentrated in a certain area and the individual who is doing the concentrating has to be supported in all kinds of peripheral ways in order to enable that concentration to take place. You see it today in certain stage families, in certain entertainment people where the man is a business manager and the woman is the actress or the singer or whatever. And it's not a matter then of sex but of ability and talent and which one is the best to put forward, which one is the best to support. The part that bothers me is the loss of courtesy on the part of women toward men and vice versa. I've had women speak to me in recent years in tones that really amazed me. I mean, you know, in my eighth decade, it it still startles me to have some young girl start calling me by my first name. 
There's no respect for age. There's no respect for sex. And this goes both ways. Yes. The men don't respect women today. Women today are not protected in the United States by the men. Do you realize that every day you pick up the newspaper there is a mutilated body of a woman somewhere thrown out for the dogs to eat and the men sit and watch television on football. I mean, this is the final stage of a sick society. Well, to go into the counter trends, uh, to list just two of them. First of all, I think one of the very interesting aspects of uh, our life today, which a lot of people find most irritating, is the popularity of the Western. The Western portrays men as men. Now, it may be an unrealistic picture, and very often is. It may be a radical uh, distortion of our history. But the enduring appeal of the Western is that good and evil are sharply drawn. Men are men, and women are women. So this tells us that people still respond to that standard. The ideal persists Mm -hmm. among the people, but the elite is doing its best to destroy it and to rule it out of existence. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, in that lies, I believe, the crux of a problem. It isn't that people are different, that men are different and women are different than they've ever been before. That's not the case. But the cultural pattern that's being imposed is Mm anti-natural. I mean, for us to be told, for instance, that we must respect somebody like Barney Frank is an insult to every sense you have. And yet that is the condition of our society. Now, obviously, we're talking about just a few instances here, and it's very treacherous to take an instance and turn it into a generality. The uh, majority, I think the uh, majority of men and women in the United States are fundamentally the same as they've ever been. Well, I think a second very hopeful sign is the Christian school movement and the homeschool movement, because in these contexts there is a stress on a respect for elders and for the opposite sex. And the children who go to such schools are taught to respect their parents and to respect their sister or their brother. Now, this is a a very important factor, and there are people across country who are not Christian who are sending their children to a Christian school because they like the standards that their children are picking up with reference to them, the parents, and with reference one to another. Well, I I think that's true, and my personal experience has been that certainly on the senior level, 
your manhood is tested. You must tell the truth, mm -hmm. and you must be courteous, and you must pay some attention to the other man. Mm -hmm. If you violate any of those precepts, you will not very long remain in the councils on the top. The fundamental facts of life cannot be altered, no matter how many wizards we have in the social sciences or how, many, how far adrift the press may go. Eventually, I think, we are developing here an official elite while the Christian movement is developing a real elite, and the one will replace the other. Yes. I think another very hopeful sign is uh, what has happened to Playboy. From the end of the 50s to the beginning of the 80s, Playboy, to a great extent, had a powerful influence on our culture. But what has happened in the 80s, the latter 80s, is that its circulation has dropped about 50%. It no longer has the general influence it once did. And Hefner, from representing a kind of an ideal to young men, began to look more and more foolish. So that in itself has indicated a healthy direction. Now, television and the films have tried to perpetuate that ideal, but they're losing an audience as a result. They're getting more desperate all the time. Yes. I expect that they'll reach explicit sex on the networks uh, within the foreseeable future, or at least they'll try to. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it reminds me of a situation I encountered once in New York on Madison Avenue, and the subject came up, a fellow said that he was going to bring call girls into the situation to get a client. And then he looked at me and said, you don't approve. I said, no, I don't. He said, for what reason? I said, well, among other reasons, I wonder what you're going to do for an encore. <laughs> and that's where Playboy reached. Yes. What did they do for an encore? Mm -hmm. uh, any subject can become a bore. These uh, types are the only ones I've ever heard of who have been able to uh, turn sex into a boring subject. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing to the children, of course, is to take the romance out of relationships. Mm -hmm. And there is a the part of the romantic movement you didn't mention, but it's a very important part. The idealization of love we have to have. We had last year 1.3 million abortions in this country. At no other time in history do I know of have the women of any nation been talked in times of peace into destroying their own progeny. Mm -hmm. So we are up against some very large, difficult situations. Yes, very clearly. But even as these things are happening at the top, on the grassroots level there is a steady uh, growth in the other direction. And there is a return to the older standards and to a biblical faith. Uh, I, I think uh, the very fact 
that there is such a militant hostility is evidence of the fact of a revival. Well, there's a revival going on, and I don't know, I don't think it's possible for any of us to discover the extent in terms of numbers. Mm -hmm. Numbers are not really the most important thing anyway. If you energize a significant percentage of the population, that changes the country. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have, I think, the equivalent of not simply the Ancien Regime. This is not a regime that is hooked to the tradition of the past. We have a regime that is trying to take us into a very unsavory future. Mm -hmm. And the, in large measure, the revival you mentioned, and the homeschooling and so forth, the, the congregations leaving the mainline churches and going into smaller and more austere groups, is a reaction against what's being imposed. Really, in spiritual terms, it's a spiritual revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we need. And I think the direction of the future is one we can take heart in. I think the present looks very grim, Otto. Oh, no question about it. Uh, but I don't think the, the future is going to uh, be what these uh, people think it's going to be. Well, I don't think they're going to be putting out these lessons forever. I don't think they're going to be debasing three-year-old, third-grade children forever. Mm -hmm. I think that the United States is composed of many more healthy people than that. Mm -hmm. I do think that the... Uh, consequent struggle is going to be difficult. On the other hand, I think something is going to have to energize the men of the United States because the feminist movement would never have gotten as far as it did if the men hadn't surrendered. Yes, the men surrendered and they very often provided the ideology for the feminists. That's right. They've encouraged it. Mm-hmm. Uh, women have lost a great deal when they're knocked off the pedestal. Yes. They've lost safety, they've lost protection, they lost two husbands, they lost children. Mm -hmm. They're now reaching the age where I'm beginning to read complaints about the fact that the biological clock has run out and they've suddenly discovered that they're alone. Mm -hmm. They didn't fulfill themselves. And this operates on the other side. 1.3 million abortions means 1.3 million fathers. Mm -hmm. And one of the weirdest things that's going on is the assumption that men are no better than bulls and that they didn't want children or that they, they're not important to children. So we'll see, I think, some remarkable shifts and changes. Yes. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.